Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to Wednesday's Money Talk on the 2nd of March. This is Peter Lewis on Radio 3 with the day's business headlines. In further fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Euroclear has become the latest securities settlement firm to stop accepting Russian rubles for payments. Euroclear's move follows a similar one by its main rival Luxembourg's Clearstream a few hours earlier and means that foreign investors who hold 41 billion US dollars of Russia's local currency government debt are now effectively trapped in the bonds and cannot sell. Deutsche Bulls suspended trading in all Russian bonds, securities and related structured products until further notice. Denmark's shipping container company Maersk suspended operations to Russia and warned that sanctions on the country are unleashing a renewed wave of disruption for international supply chains. Hong Kong health authorities yesterday reported 32,597 new COVID notification cases and a record 172 deaths, bringing the total number of infections in the current wave to over 220,000. There was panic buying across Hong Kong as rumours spread of a territory-wide lockdown and supermarket closures. Official figures show a net outflow of over 65,000 residents in February, up from about 14,000 the previous month. Activity in China's manufacturing sector improved in February. The official manufacturing PMI rose to 50.2 last month from 50.1 in January, beating economists' forecasts of a decline to 49.9. The non-manufacturing gauge, which measures activity in the construction and services sectors, increased to 51.6 from the prior month's 51.1 and above consensus forecasts. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Sam Favreau at Mandarin Capital, Carlos Casanova from UBP, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK. U.S. and European shares have tumbled, government bonds rallied, and oil prices have surged as the economic implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue to mount. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 index fell 1.6% to 4,306. The Dow tumbled 598 points to 33,295. The Nasdaq Composite Index was off 1.6% at 13,532. Financial stocks led the declines in the US. Europe's Stock 600 Index fell 2.4%. The stocks will purge 61 Russian companies from its indices, including Gazprom, Lukoil, Sberbank, Roussel and Aeroflot. London's FTSE 100 tumbled 1.7%. Shares in Russian bank VTB were suspended on the London Stock uh, Stock Exchange after a fresh round of UK sanctions against Russian companies came into force on Tuesday. The Moscow Stock Exchange remained closed for a second day, but the Vanek Russia ETF, which trades in New York, was down another 19% following a 30% slump on Monday. Hong Kong stocks rebounded after the latest economic data showed manufacturing activity in China performing better than expected last month. The Hang Seng Index climbed 0.2% to 22,762. 
For the month of February, the index retreated 4.6%, the worst month since November. The tech index added 0.7%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite gained 0.8% to 3,489. The US and other big energy-consuming nations have agreed to release 60 million barrels of oil from their emergency stockpile to combat the disruption to energy supplies from Russia. But commodity markets were underwhelmed. The price of Brent crude oil rocketed over 9% to a fresh eight-year high above $109 per barrel. And it's trading at $109.90 a barrel right now. The Bloomberg Commodity Index saw its biggest daily jump since 2009. Wheat futures jumped almost 5.5% to a 13-year high. Corn futures moved over 5% higher. Gold surged almost 2% to $1,943 an ounce. Government bonds staged a powerful rally as traders bet the economic uh, fallout from the invasion will cause the Fed and the ECB to slow the pace of interest rate rises. Germany's 10-year bond yield sank below zero for the first time in a month. The 10-year UK gilt yield tumbled 28 basis points to 1.13%, the biggest one-day decline since the day after the Brexit referendum in June 2016. In the US, the 10-year Treasury yield dropped by 12 basis points to 1.72%, its lowest since January. Investors have moderated their expectations for the number of US interest rate rises by the Fed this year from 6 on Friday to 5 now. And the ECB is now forecast to raise interest rates by just 20 basis points this year, compared to expectations of 50 basis points before the invasion started. In the currency markets, the euro is trading at $1.11 and a quarter cents. The bucks at 114.9 Japanese yen. Sterling buys $1.33 and a quarter cents and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 41 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.32 in offshore markets. The Russian ruble continued to slump on foreign exchange markets, dropping another 7% overnight to a new record low of 101 against the dollar on the Moscow exchange. However, brokers outside of Russia were quoting much lower rates of around 110 to the dollar, with Russian banks unable to trade with Western investors following sanctions imposed over the weekend. And Bitcoin continued its rally, adding 5% to $44,300. Asian stock markets are on the slide this morning. Uh, the SX200 off 0.1%. Nikkei 225 in Japan down 1.1%. The Cosby is flat. The Hang Seng Index looks set to lose about 230 points at the open this morning. It's 8.10, much to discuss this morning. Let's welcome our guests. Over in the Queensway studio, we have Sam Favur, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning, Sam. Morning, Peter. And also with us is Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Welcome, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. And uh, from Washington, D.C., we have our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with you, Barry. As you've heard, there are a lot of further developments now on the Ukraine crisis. It seems... There's an unprecedented amount, Barry, of economic and financial sanctions now from the US, EU and their allies, as well as this being a bombing war. Um, this is really also a financial and economic war, isn't it? The likes of which I don't think we've ever seen before. 
Yes, I think that's true. This is uh, really far-reaching what the Western nations have imposed on Russia. Essentially, the Russians are cut off even from their own central bank reserves which they keep overseas. And of course, the Russian people are the biggest sufferers because they can't get to their yachts, their I'm talking about the, the oligarchs. The oligarchs can't get to the yachts or the London apartments or other kinds of assets they have abroad. And of course, the Russian people are cut off from using their Visa cards, their MasterCards. They, the Russian system is, 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 is tiny compared to the international system, the SWIFT system, and the ruble collapses. So everyone suffers in Russia. And I think, Peter, it's very significant that the North Americans, as Canadians and the Americans, have worked with the Europeans and set up a transatlantic task force to make sure that all of these sanctions are, are enforced, the financial sanctions. But let's not forget that oil and gas exports from Russia into Europe are unaffected because there's been a carve-out to allow those payments to go ahead. What is support like in the U.S. for President Biden's actions? And are, are the American people prepared to bear the economic costs of this? Because there will be some, won't they, for them? Well, there's certainly been costs so far, Peter, in the sense that um, the stock market has been in correction territory now for quite mm -hmm. a while. And uh, that's been a significant loss. Look, uh, I was just uh, out an hour ago, and uh, here are people hanging... Ukrainian blue and yellow flags across the street. Uh, governors have taken Russian products off their shelves. So I think there's a lot of support for what President Biden has done. And there's certainly amazing support for the Ukrainians in standing up to the Russians. Okay. Sam, hopefully you still have access to your yacht, but what do you make of these sanctions? Oh, my, my yacht is very small, Peter. So, <laughs> no, it's pretty massive. I mean, what is even more <laughs> Not the yacht, the sanctions. <laughs> Um, the, uh, what is actually very surprising about the sanctions also the, uh, the participants, like you had Switzerland, you had Singapore and uh, you know, Monaco closing the loopholes there as well. Mm. So from a Russian perspective, it's a massive shock. You have equity written down to zero more or less on some of these banks. You have deposits effectively confiscated, so the, the, uh, the outcome will be pretty dire for the next you know, foreseeable future on the Russian economy. So the real question is how far this economy can go and pursue this war because that's also a very costly a war so mm -hmm. I think we have never seen such a uh, co coordinated uh, sanction approach across the world and that definitely will have far-reaching impact for, for, for Russia and uh, to a lesser extent to Europe as well which I think is the most effective continent after that. If, if the Russian financial system collapses and it, it seems on the verge of collapse doesn't it are there ripple effects <coughs> around the world from that? I think it's pretty, um, it's pretty small in terms of potential contagion. Uh, first, Russia has tried to isolate itself and the amount of outstanding credit and debt, uh, which is uh, held offshore for, you know, for Russia, is not something which is going to be systemically uh, critical for the rest of the world. So I think it's pretty much manageable for the rest of the world. But there are some European banks, aren't there, that have very high exposures to Russia. They've made a lot of loans to Russian companies. They have offices in Russia. Um, presumably those Russian companies could go and default on their loans. This would be a big cost for some of them. It will. It already, it's already partially reflected. But I think on that specific measure, there will be com complete support from uh, the central authorities. And I don't see any kind of... Uh, massive collapse from the banking system in Europe. In a, if anything, you will have some equity write-down, which we're seeing, 
but it will be priced in and uh, it will life will go on on this mm. Carlos what, what do you make of the economic fallout from this mm-hmm. well uh, we are seeing um, that the cost for Russia is probably higher than what uh, Putin had in mind um, when he headed into the the, the conflict with Ukraine um, unfortunately, I, I think it still remains early to say uh, what the full impact uh, of the conflict will be on the financial system because it's still evolving. So we are entering a more violent phase of war now with potentially bombings. Um, and so they will have to continue to impose um, sanctions and, and other measures on, on the Russian economy. And we will see volatility in the market as a result. Um, in, in terms of how long can Russia sustain this war, um, I, you know, they, they have been building up their, their buffers uh, over the years, of course, freezing a large proportion of this um, um, of, of this coffer that is held overseas is going to make it harder for Putin to sustain um, this war for longer. Um, but we do expect um, that this will still continue um, uh, in a more violent phase. And of course, um, that will uh, entail, uh, you know, further further downside risks for the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think something else that's interesting is all this conversation about exclusion of Chinese uh, of Russian uh, companies from some of the um, indices. Um, inevitably, you know, it, it might not have spillover effects in the longer term, but inevitably, um, it is going to entail some volatility in the short term. And we are already seeing many investors that wish to. Uh, hedge or, or shield themselves for some of this volatility as um, it is expected to increase in the, in the next few weeks. So I think uh, still very sensitive period, unfortunately, with, with large repercussions on the economy and the financial system. I mean, one of the impacts of this is going to be um, more problems for the world's supply chains, which have already been battered. We heard Maersk yesterday uh, warn of that. Uh, we've seen the fighting shut down car factories in Germany that rely on Ukraine components. It's hit the steel industry in Japan. This potentially could be a problem, couldn't it? I, I think this will be a problem. It's already being priced in uh, on the inflation front and with fewer rate hikes from the Fed and the ECB. Um, Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of raw materials in general. Um, the ones that are more commonly discussed include um, oil and gas, where they're the third largest exporter. Um, uh, but you also have uh, 50% of global exports of nickel, 42% of global exports of palladium, another very important uh, metal there. Um, you have uh, a third of diamonds, 26% of aluminium, 13% of platinum, uh, neon gas, which is used in the manufacturing of semiconductors. Uh, Ukraine uh, accounts for 65% of that. Um, and we are seeing disruptions as a result of the war. And of course, on the agro-commodity front, we, we have 30% um, of global exports of corn and wheat um, coming out of Russia and the Ukraine. So naturally, futures are pricing a significant upside for, the, for those commodities. But what the market doesn't fully understand yet is the implication that an increase in prices will have on the global supply chain in completely unrelated parts of the world, like Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, in the okay. months to come. So this is, this is something that I think uh, w- will be very critical going forward. Barry, do you think this changes the calculations for the Fed um, when they meet uh, later this month? Yes, I do. I think we're going to see uh, the Fed be very cautious. They'll only do a quarter point. And I think that uh, I think Carlos is absolutely right. All of those commodities that the Russians and Ukrainians export 
we're going to see higher prices. We're going to see slower growth worldwide, particularly in Europe and the United States. I mean, when you raise fuel prices to the extent that they're going up, this is, this is heavy duty. All of that translates into the Federal Reserve being more cautious than they would have been two weeks ago. Sam, it's, it's a problem, though, isn't it, for central banks like the Fed and the ECB, which were planning to, to re- remove monetary accommodation. This is clearly inflationary, so it puts more pressure on them, but at the same time, it affects global growth. Yeah, but I think I disagree with, uh, with uh, Carlos and Barry on this one. I think these are, you know, all habits because the last 20 years was pretty... Uh, was pretty weak in terms of inflation and to trust the, the Fed put. Now, we are in a high inflation environment and we're effectively adding fuel to the fire. And that we're in a position where the policy is still very, very accommodative. So I don't see the Fed to have any margin for really reducing the, uh, the, uh, the tightening for the time being unle- until they have a real assessment on the economic impact. Let's, 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 they will have to see how much the economic impact is because at the moment these economies are still running pretty strong. And the main concern is clearly inflation, and that adds to more than the concern. And obviously, price stability is going to be a significant issue for the next foreseeable future. Okay, let's move on and talk about Hong Kong. Hong Kong health authorities on Tuesday reported 32,597 new COVID notification cases, and sadly, a record 172 uh, deaths. Tens of thousands of residents have fled the city because of the stringent COVID uh, measures. Uh, departures in February were over 65,000 compared to 14,000 the previous month. Uh, and yesterday, um, Bank of America downgraded its annual GDP forecast to 1.6%. If you remember, Financial Secretary Paul Chan is forecasting growth of 2 to 3.5% in real terms for the year as a whole. Um, Carlos, what, what do you think for the Hong Kong economy now in light of uh, all the, uh, this latest surge in, uh, in COVID infections? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at um, high-frequency activity indicators, the pace of decline of things like transportation um, hasn't reached uh, the trough um, that was reached um, during the, 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 the first sort of uh, bout of COVID-19 in 2020. Um, having said that, the city hasn't yet experienced uh, a full uh, lockdown. So we are, uh, you know, in terms of that scenario, it does suggest that risks are tilted um, to the downside in Q1. Uh, Bank of America, um, I believe you mentioned, um, they've revised their forecast to 1.6, expecting a 1.1% year-on-year contraction in the first quarter. I think potentially it would be uh, worse than that if you look at the economic impact of these lockdowns in other parts of the world last year. Um, our, of course, Fitch uh, was one of the first rating agencies to downgrade growth uh, a couple of weeks ago to 1.5%, lower than um, than this forecast by Bank of America. Our figure is actually 1.0%. Our revised figure is 1.0% uh, because we do think that the lockdown uh, will um, have an impact not only in the first quarter, but also on the second quarter, uh, with uh, there being potential for upside risks in the second half if Hong Kong moves away from its dynamic zero COVID strategy, um, and that leads to a, a, a boost in consumption. But that is if a big if, so it remains to be seen. Um, so overall, we are going to see uh, you know, a slightly more contractionary environment as a result of, of the citywide uh, lockdown that they're imposing, and, and it's something that is not... Although we are seeing uh, that downside revisions to consensus, which is something we discussed last time on the program as well, 
um, I don't think this is fully priced in yet. Sam, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong is uh, effectively we have no visibility on, uh, I mean, from an economic perspective on what's going to happen. So even if we have a lockdown, what's next? Uh, I mean, Hong Kong needs to have some proper milestones to see to, to, and have some, you know, hopes of what can happen next. I mean, we have lots of problems to solve. We have clearly, we have uh, the elderly situation, which is dire. We have the kids situation. Then we have the business, which needs to have to, to have to reopen. And then we have the borders to reopen. At the moment, we're just reactive. We cannot see any kind of targets or milestone being put forward, which would give the kind of, necess of necessary safe environment or semi-safe environment for people to start, uh, you know, reinvesting and putting business back in Hong Kong. So I think that's what is really wrong at this stage to forecast anything. Well, and what do you make of um, the exodus of people? Over 65,000 uh, residents left in February. Does that have implications for Hong Kong's future and, and our role um, as a financial centre? Well, it is. I think even the, even the regulators are very concerned. I mean, we have the HKMA trying to lobby for shorter quarantine. You have the SFC quite concerned as well. And I think it's 65,000 because there were not more and more flights, or there was more people would have left. And I think you'll see another wave uh, back in June, uh, in June and July, when it's end of the school year, when people will leave again more definitely. So the problem again is perspective. What kind of perspective can we put back in Hong Kong in terms of business environment, social environment? At the moment, it's purely reactive, and we need to start uh, moving ahead of the curve and propose a future for people. Now, it's a put, well, sadly, we had this 172 deaths yesterday in a day in Hong Kong. That's a record. To put that into context, if you scaled it for the population, that will be the equivalent of 7,700 deaths in the USA, which they've never, ever seen. The, the record was 4,442 in, Janu uh, in Janu January 2021, when just 1% of the US population was vaccinated. Um, clearly, it's a, it, it's a huge, huge problem, isn't it? Absolutely. I can only feel sorrow and, and great sympathy for what Hong Kongers are going through at the moment. Uh, the perspective, of course, is that in the States, we've lost 900,000 people dead. But mm. that's over, a, what, a two-year period. And it's, and it's, but we're getting better. That's the irony here. Uh, we're opening up, and you're essentially stuck and uh, it's, it's a very, very tough situation. Sam, is that the problem? I mean, the, Carrie Lam was saying just yesterday, the main goal of the mass testing drive is to achieve zero COVID. It looks like that's still uh, the target. Well, I'm not sure how you can achieve zero, zero COVID at this stage with such a circulation. I think the real problem at the moment is to, to deal with the uh, imminent danger, which is the elderly who are being isolated and vaccinated. So instead of, you know, Instead of uh, putting everybody under, under confined, confined homes, uh, like 90% vaccinated, 20 years old, we should definitely look, look uh, to take care of the elderly and make sure they're vaccinated or they're isolated, they're at risk. That should be the priority, I think. Mm. Okay. Um, Carlos, let me get your thoughts on the, um, the economic data from the mainland uh, yesterday. The, uh, the official PMI rose to 50.2 from 50.1 in uh, January. The non-manufacturing gauge also increased more than expected from 51.1 to 51.6. Are you surprised? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not entirely surprised, to be honest. They, they have uh, pivoted towards policy accommodation since the middle of um, December. So that is something we are starting to see in the numbers. Of course, January and February is a bit of a black box for China as they um, only release 
um, the, the key activity indicators for the two months combined in March. So we will have to wait un- until the middle of March to understand what this really means. But the data that is available is pointing towards um, a, a cyclical recovery and activity. We've seen that in the PMIs. We might see that on exports, uh, an increase in Omicron cases in other economies, in particular in Asia, might have also played a role in boosting manufacturing se- the manufacturing sector in China. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, in anticipation of uh, you know next week's um, National People's Congress, where they will announce the GDP growth target and fiscal stimulus for the year, mm-hmm. um, I think that um, there is potential for some upside surprises there, uh, given um, that the, the direction of, of the policy now is clear. Does it take uh, pressure off the PPOC and the authorities to, to ease policy more? The um, degree to which they increased credit in January uh, most certainly uh, helped to remove uh, pressure from the PBOC to hike interest rates in February. So we saw that already. Uh, in our baseline scenario, we expect that they will implement one more round of interest rate cuts in March um, as the inflationary environment remains supportive for now, but you know, possibly some upside risks due to rising oil prices and base effects in the remainder of the year. So we think they're going to get on with monetary policy stimulus in March, one more round. And beyond that, they will uh, have to use other other tools like liquidity injections and triple R cuts, as well as fiscal stimulus. So the onus is really focusing away from monetary and fiscal for the remainder of the year. Sam, what do you make of the, uh, the data? No, I agree with Carlos. We're starting to see some uh, effect of the stabilization measures done by the authorities um, has taken some pressure off, uh, especially from some of the battered sectors. So let's see, uh, let's see how this, uh, the economy is going to withstand the, uh, the shocks from, uh, from the north and the west. But uh, so far, they are doing a fairly good job at uh, mitigating the problems they had uh, within their domestic market. And is China's economy reasonably well um, insulated from what's going on um, in, in terms of the Russia-Ukraine crisis? Yes, I think so. I mean, they have, uh, yes, in a nutshell. They, I don't think they have too much exposure to the, uh, to the, Russian, uh, to the Russian crisis. Okay. Barry, final word to you. We've got uh, President Biden's State of the Union address uh, coming up later on uh, the, this evening or that, during this morning, our time here. What should we expect? Is he rewriting it now in light of what's going on in Ukraine? <laughs> Maybe he is. Maybe he is. Look, I think he's coming in at a high point because a lot of the progressive leftism that uh, the president was stuck with uh, earlier has really uh, vanished. And I think he's going to make a middle-of-the-road speech. He's got a Supreme Court uh, nominee who is winning, winning plaudits from Republicans. So I think it's, uh, he's got a real opportunity. And may I add, Peter, just one brief optimistic note. China remains this huge export machine to the United States, and the United States exports to China are at record highs. So trade war or no trade war, our economic links are closer than they've ever been. Well, that's a nice note uh, to finish on. Thank you very much. That's our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, over in Washington, D.C. Sam Favre, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning, the ASX 200 uh, up about 0.1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is off 1.2%. The Cosby in South Korea down a quarter of a percent. The Hang Seng looks set to open about 230 points lower. 
in the commodities markets. Brent crude oil right now trading at $109.90 a barrel. Gold is at $1,941 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. After the news, we have COVID updates with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The weather forecast, fine. Visibility relatively low in some areas at first. Warm during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 26 degrees. And then sunny intervals tomorrow. Temperatures will be lower during the day. Temperature right now is 20 degrees and it's 88% relative humidity. It's 8.31. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. A food logistics expert says this week's panic buying shows a lack of trust in the system and insufficient communication from the government. Daisy Tam from the Baptist University's Department of Humanities told Vicki Wong that with 95% of Hong Kong's food imported, the government should have contingency measures in place if supplies were to be disrupted. She said it also needed to ensure its message got through to allay the public's fears. Keeping the population calm means that we need to have an understanding of what is what are the possible uh, contingency measures, and how it is that the city is indeed securing our supply of fresh food. Professor Tam urged the public not to panic, saying food supplies were returning to normal. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has warned that it cannot win the war with Russia on its own, and the West will inevitably have to become involved. He said NATO must rethink its proposal to impose a no-fly zone, which he said was vital to stop Moscow's bombardment of Ukraine. It is important to know that if Ukraine falls, all those troops will be at the borders of your countries, NATO members' borders, Lithuania, Poland, and so on. There will be the same problem there, and there will be a second round of testing because there will also be provocations. Speaking after talks in Warsaw with the Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said implementing a no-fly zone was something the UK and NATO could not do, as it would mean shooting down Russian planes. But Mr. Johnson strongly criticized the Russian president. It is clear, as you say, Mateusz, that, that Vladimir Putin is prepared to use barbaric and indiscriminate tactics against innocent civilians to bomb uh, tower blocks, to send missiles into tower blocks uh, to kill uh, children, uh, as we're seeing in increasing numbers. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, says China has offered to help mediate a ceasefire with Moscow. Mr. Kuleba said he had a constructive telephone discussion with his Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi. The Swiss-based company which built the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany is reportedly considering filing for insolvency. The company is trying to settle claims ahead of a U.S. sanction deadline. The U.S. sanctioned Nord Stream AG last week after Russia recognized two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine prior to its attack on the country. And finally, South Korean billionaire Kim Jong-joo, the founder of gaming giant Nexon, has died. He was 54. The Yonhap News Agency said the businessman, who according to Forbes was worth around 9.5 billion U.S. dollars, died in the United States last month. The cause of death was not given. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. 
Until uh, nine o'clock this morning, we'll be looking at uh, home isolation and new facilities becoming available ahead of the universal uh, testing plan. And after nine on back chat, we're talking about Hong Kong students' uh, early.